This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. First, our positive professor Carol Sikora. And more than three million Brits have been forced to go private since 2020 amid the NHS backlog. And a bomb, that's according to a bombshell poll. Uh, YouGov research showed an estimated 3.7 million folk gave up waiting for an appointment as the NHS struggles to cope with that backlog caused by the pandemic. The delays are made more frustrating by the more than 37,000 appointments that are missed every day, according to NHS data, which has cost the cash-strapped health service about £175 million so far this year alone. The millions of wasted GP appointments have sparked calls for patients to be fined five or ten pounds if they fail to show up. So, Carol, this is a really interesting proposition in my books. Do you think fines could actually act as a useful deterrent and help make GPs accessible again? I think it could. I mean, it's bizarre, Dan, that we come to this, but there's no doubt that people misuse the NHS. Most people are great about it. They make an appointment. If they can't show up, whatever reason, they're ill, the family's ill, some problem has arisen in their lives, they cancel. But the cost of not attending an appointment is huge in the system. In hospitals, we call it DNA, do not attend. Nothing to do with genetics, but that's what people think it says when you write DNA in the notes. But there's no doubt that DNAs cost hospitals a lot of money. And the slot that was available becomes unavailable. Now, okay, the doctor can sit and twiddle his thumbs, have a cup of coffee, but it's a waste and no one wants it. And, you know, and any airline, any a dentist, a veterinary surgeon, none of this happens because people get fined if they don't turn up. They have to pay something. You don't pitch up for a cheap plane ride, you get you lose the ticket. And we don't do that in the NHS. It's free, and anything that's free is not appreciated, and that's the problem. Ninety-five percent of people do appreciate, and they behave really well. But a few, a small minority misbehave and that's what we've got i think you're completely right carol and actually i am very strongly in favor of these fines because the problem is so many people are unable to see the gp when actually there is an abundance of appointments available it's just that folk can't be bothered to cancel you know I was shocked when I read yesterday in the papers that 37,000 people a day don't turn up for an NHS appointment without cancelling. Now, there may be some good reasons here. People may become suddenly ill or something, but the majority are not. They just, you know, they've made an appointment, forgot about it, inconvenient, they're down the pub. This is no good. We've got to do something about it. Every other aspect of life, we do something. We, we, we impose, not fines, but we, we, we try and increase the cost to someone if they miss an appointment. But in the NHS, we don't do that. It is difficult to implement, difficult to collect, but we can do it. There are mechanisms to do this, and we should do it because the capacity in the NHS is critical to getting through the backlog. Indeed, I know there'll be a lot of people who are so opposed because they believe that everything should remain free at point of use. But I think if folks started to realise, Carol, that it would mean it was more likely that they would get an appointment with their GP or they would get to choose the particular appointment time they wanted or there would be an, 
an opportunity to get last minute appointments, Carol, because what could happen is that when people cancelled in the morning, all of those appointments became available for people who were uh, suffering from particularly urgent needs. I think when you look at that big picture, it really is worth it. It is. If you look at the broad picture, we've got to do something. The capacity is limited in the health service, capacity is limited everywhere around the, around the world. Other countries, no one would be so irresponsible as to have 37,000 people a day not pitching up for something that they're booked for. And the only way to deal with it is to, to actually find people to say it's going to cost you. Dentists have been doing it for years. Um, veterinary surgeons also for years. So why not the NHS? Sure, it's difficult to implement, but we can do it. It's a challenge that's really worth doing to get the capacity back within the system. Carol Sakura, our positive professor, good common sense advice as always. Thank you so much. Neil Oliver is tonight's outsider. As you know, I believe mass formation psychosis has become prevalent over the COVID-19 pandemic. Very often the facts about the virus don't seem to matter, even when the fabled so-called science proves the hysteric myth peddlers wrong. So this weekend I posted just a very simple question, really. Why? When I saw these two perfectly healthy tourists walking outside on a very hot day, in the middle of a park, both muzzled with face masks. I thought it was a simple question, but it caused a total meltdown from the left all weekend long. And Neil Oliver, I really wanted to know uh, what you thought on this one, because surely we have to keep asking questions about the sanity of mask wearing, especially when you see folk covered up outside uh, where there's no scientific basis for what they're doing? I think you're completely right. Uh, I think it's apparent that it's in the government's interests to keep the fear on, you know, the engine idling, you know, the, to keep the fear on takeover. Um, and, you know, when you when you go online, if, if you if anything online that, that uh, contradicts far less refutes the, the government narrative, you see those blue straps that go across the videos and across the content saying where you can go to content to contact the, the, the government and to and to get that official line so that they're not letting that drop. Uh, you're, you're always being reminded that there's a, an, an official story out there that COVID is still there, that the pandemic is somehow still there. I think that's in the government's interests, and it's playing it's playing uh, to the instincts of of part of the population. I, I think there are multiple reasons why some people are still wearing face masks. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's a symptom of a disease, and the disease is fear, and and that fear is not from any Chinese lab, but it was cooked up by our own government. And I think many people of all ages and backgrounds genuinely remain frightened of COVID. I don't understand why, personally, a bar the first couple of weeks, I never thought COVID was anything to fear, no more than flu. Um, and I, I never resorted. I never resorted to, to face coverings. Uh, then there are those for whom I think the mask is a badge of some sort of imagined superiority. 
there were those who swallowed hook, line and sinker that wearing a mask was a good thing to do, good thing in, you know, in, in block capitals. Uh, and having uh, been seen to be doing the good thing, they won't that that proportion of the population that portion of the population won't let that drop. Uh, that, for me, the masks were always pointless at best, harmful to health and well-being at worst. But I think for many people, you know, they say it's easier to fool someone than to persuade the same person to accept that they've been fooled. Yes. So I think I think if you I think if you bought into the the mask wearing as being something that that had a function. To admit to yourself and to everyone else that it never did is very, very difficult for some people. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's admitting that they were that they were pulled in, that they were that they were fooled, uh, and that they were persuaded of something that was all just part of the the tactics of the nudge units and the psyops yes. that were deployed against the population. And I think there's a lot of people who just can't let that go because they would feel embarrassed. Yeah, I think also I think I think bizarrely mask wearing, as it turned out, just suited some people. You know, wearing a mask is a way to hide, and there are all sorts of people for all sorts of you know reasons, real and imagined, that, that want to hide out there in the out there in the population, and you know it, it keeps other people at a distance. It's a it's a literal barrier between the self and the rest of the population, and, and so I think. Nothing to do with COVID. I think there were there were people out there that found it a relief to disappear, uh, and and to be able to you know to hold others at arm's length in that way. So, I think there are multiple reasons why the masks are still on some faces. But I think genuinely, my, hand on heart, I think the government feels it's too tempting to to uh, to keep it all on takeover, because the fear. Has uh, has granted governments around the world and here hitherto undreamt of control and potential to get people to do what yeah. you want. Yeah, and, and that's the, why the I mask, refuse a- to normalise it, Neil. I refuse to apologise for calling out the madness when I see it. But I think you are completely right, by the way, about the way that people put their faith in masks to stop transmission, because, Neil, we're seeing the same thing now with the vaccines, aren't we? A lot of the same people put their faith in the vaccines to stop transmission. And the cold, hard reality, Neil, is that neither masks nor the vaccines stopped transmission. Dan, this is a massive, a massive ruse that's been pulled on people, that masks would stop you transmitting or, or, or catching the virus and that the, and that the vaccines were, were vaccines, that the vaccines were going to stop you contracting it and, and would work as vaccines. Every other vaccine any, any of us have taken you know, whatever it was, measles, mumps, whatever. If you took that, if you took that vaccine, you did not catch that disease in your life. These vaccines never did that. They never achieved that, and they, and, and therefore they, they they ought not even to properly be described as vaccines or, or, or used in the same sense. And it's been a massive, it's been a massive ruse, and for and it's too big. It's too big. It's worldwide. It's billions of people who were pulled into this. And for governments to, around the world to admit how wrong they got it, how wrong they called it, and how ineffectual were the means that they forced onto billions of people around the world, it's too big. And governments, Absolutely. for the sake of their own survival, 
that only but they come. So, so they let the madness continue. Indeed. And the other thing, it, Neil, it, that I've heard a lot of, no, completely. The other thing I've heard a lot of, Neil, uh, the past 48 hours uh, is, oh, but they do it in Asia. Look at Asia. So it must be right. I mean, I'm sorry, Neil. I think we should stop looking to Asia for the, the way to deal with pandemics because we looked to Asia and we got lockdowns. Yes, and uh, apart from anything else, in Asia, Asia is a, it's a continent, it's a sweeping generalisation, but in, in countries in Asia, Japan, for example, you know, just to take an example, very, very different cultural mores apply. And, and people, individuals, relate to one another and, and behave to one another differently than, than we do in the West. You know, there, there's a lot of emphasis on face and face-saving and on, on different etiquettes. And I think the the wearing of the mask in that in that context, it's not that if you've got the cold or the flu and you sneeze, that the mask is going to stop the the microbes passing through that mask and getting out into the population. But I, I think what it says for some cultures is I am I am carrying something, I am ill with something, and I am doing my best. As a as a as a member of society, not you know, I'm I'm just doing my best here. They don't have a they don't serve a practical function. It's only a face saving exercise. And to imagine that we could translate cultural mores from very different places with very different histories and very different uh, you know cultural backgrounds uh, that we could translate them here, it just doesn't make sense. And yes, I think it's a it's a completely redundant. Uh, uh, argument to say that because other cultures have have adopted this as a norm that we should too the the bottom line is in relation to covid-19 the masks did and never could do they did nothing and they never could it was a complete farce it was all part of that covid pandemic pantomime and that and that some people are continuing to, to take some kind of comfort in wearing them or to transmit uh, some kind of superiority, some imagined superiority by continuing to do what was touted to them as the good thing to do. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it needs psychological explanation. I think it has a psychological component. I think for some people it's symptomatic of mental harm that's been done to them. Yep. And you're absolutely right. I think for the for the mass of the population that want to go about their business uh, unperturbed, unmolested by officialdom, to get the governments to back off and leave us alone, the the masks you must not comply with the masks. Right. You've got to get back to normal and say that was a mistake and that is behind us. And call out the madness. Thank you, Neil Oliver, for bringing some sanity uh, to that situation. I have to say, you know, I asked the question why I got over 20,000 responses and not one good reason as to why a couple that had been tourists in London all day, presumably going inside tubes and everything, would wear masks in the middle of a park outside on a summer's day. Not one good answer. Neil Oliver, thank you. Because there is no good answer, Dan. There is no good answer. Indeed. Thank you, Neil.
We're crossing live now to Rosarito, Mexico, where I'm joined by the half-brother of the Duchess of Sussex, Thomas Markle Jr. Now, he's currently providing full-time care for his father, Thomas Markle, who, as you know, tragically suffered a huge stroke last week, leaving him unable to travel to London to be our special correspondent for the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Thomas, it is great to speak to you. Now, first, obviously really positive that your dad has been released home. Uh, what's the latest you can tell us on his condition? Uh, well, first off, I'd like to say that um, my dad is actually here with us in the room during this interview, which he, you know, he really enjoys. He wanted to get the point across to where uh, he thanks everybody everywhere around the world from the amazing comments and get well soon quotes. Um, he really loves them and he really appreciates everybody's uh, concern. Um, he's doing amazing considering, and it's just, it, it's been a long week, but you know, I'm glad we're here at this point. I wish it was under better circumstances, but I mean, it is what it is. Well, indeed, let me just say to Thomas Sr., we're so sad, Thomas, because of course you were meant to be in the air right now, joining us in London tomorrow for a very special week at the Platinum Jubilee. But Thomas, you will get on that plane, might just take you a few more months. And Thomas Markle Jr., I believe your dad has a message to the Queen as well. Yeah, dad wanted to say that um, he was very, very much looking forward to attending the 70th Jubilee uh, celebration. He really wanted to be there. Um, he sends the Queen's, he sends the Queen's his best regards and and but he will be there soon. He will be there at a future date. And maybe then maybe then they can have their their meeting. Oh, we're going to hold you to it, Thomas. The plane ticket is just on hold. OK, it's just on hold. It's not cancelled. We're going to bring you to London. Uh, come hell or high water. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, Thomas, there are a couple of things I wanted to pick up on because the Sunday Mirror front page at the weekend claimed that your sister Megan had been in touch with your dad and was intending to reconcile, but wanted to cut both you and Thomas's other daughter, Samantha Markle, out of the picture. Is, is that true at all? Well, let, let me uh, be very clear on what I say next. Um, this actually happened prior to their wedding. Um, probably caused my dad some some problems there as well. But Megan had contacted my father saying if he wanted to come to the wedding, that he had to disown myself and my sister, Samantha. So maybe that still applies to her or maybe that's what she's still thinking. But that's that's definitely what happened. Um, and to answer your question, Dan, um, she made no attempt whatsoever at all to contact my father. I've been with my dad the whole week. She still has the same phone number she's had forever. My dad still has the same phone number. She could have called, she could have texted. So yes, it's a completely fabricated story about she tried to contact and reach out. Do you think this is about publicity, Thomas, to try and make it look better for Megan, given that she's done this quite crude publicity stunt by flying halfway across America uh, to visit the scene of, of the mass shooting in Texas. And this week she's planning to still visit the UK for the Platinum Jubilee, despite not seeing your dad. Does it just feel like this is publicity? She's wanting people to think 
that she's trying to solve things with your father? I honestly don't know what Megan's agenda is. I'm just telling you from my standpoint of view, it's totally wrong what she's done. It's, it's, it's just, um, it's the most insensitive, inconsiderable thing I've ever seen in my life. She went there three days prior or whatever. I mean, she, she, she's had every opportunity. And it probably most likely was a PR stunt, judging by the cameras there and the little walk she did like she was on a stage. And it, it just didn't make any sense. It's, she, she, if she wanted to reach out to my father, she's had every opportunity. And, and as far as a PR, PR stunt goes, maybe this, her saying that she tried to reach out is trying to make herself look better. I mean, she's got to pay her PR team ridiculous amounts of money to do this. So she has to give them content. Somebody's got to be telling these people what to do and what to print. And Thomas, she is literally about a three or four hour drive away. I mean, it's closer for her to get to you and, and your dad than it was for her to get to Texas. So practically there's nothing stopping her. Yeah, not only is it three or four hours away, it's, it's I mean, it's like, how many days late? I mean, she did tell you, it's just, it's just, you know, no comment. It's just, my God, I mean, she just, she just needs to figure out who she is as a person. And if she's showing the world who she is right now as a person, she's doing a really good job of it. Indeed, and it's heartbreaking for me, uh, Thomas, because I was going through your sister's blog, you know, the blog, the TIG that she had before she met Prince Harry. And she wrote a lot about your dad and, and it was all positive, but I was particularly struck by a post that she made about your dad on Father's Day 2014. And these are her words written on her blog. And she said, my dad taught me to find my light. To my dad, my thoughtful, inspiring, hardworking daddy, happy Father's Day. If I had all the water in the world, I'd give all the water to you. You won't get that quote, but he will. And for Father's Day, that's all that matters. So, Thomas, she adored your father. She publicly praised your father. And she won't be with him at his hour of need. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the question mark for the entire world to figure out. It's, it's, it's a mystery still to this day. Um, you know, we can embellish on the fact that money has changed her. Uh, fame has changed her. I mean, I mean, it's still a mystery. It's, it's really sad, though. I mean, even, no, matter, no matter what happens in your family, you only have one family. And they're the only ones who are through for you when you need them. And that's why I'm here, because my dad needs me. And that's why I came down here immediately from, you know, I, I left the day before that to go to Oregon to help my son launch his new, launch his new business. And I turned around and came right back. I mean, there's just no question mark whatsoever. Exactly. I mean, because that's what children do. That is what yeah, kids do. That's what um, family does. Yeah. Because I mean, anybody else, there is nobody else who is going to care and be there as much as family would. Uh, Thomas, I wanted to ask you about these vile individuals who refer to themselves as the Sussex squad, because they were posting some of the most revolting things about your father uh, 
and his trip to London with GB News, some of them even featured me uh, in the days and the weeks before his stroke. Uh, do, do, do you think all of this trolling made any difference to Thomas's health? Well, I'm gonna tell you, Dan, I was here, uh, like I said, the day before I left and I came over to my dad's house because I, I have a place three doors down as well. Um, and I was concerned because I was looking at my Instagram. I have an Instagram page since I started uh, when, when, when I went on Big Brother VIP in Australia. It's called The Real Thomas Markle Jr. And I get so many horrific threats from the Sussex squad and, and a few others, which are just like, I don't even pick on Megan on my, on my Instagram page at all, ever. But when I see this stuff, it, it, it's just crazy. And then, so I come to my dad's house and start going through it. And I look on YouTube and my God, I see the, the, the Sussex squad and, and the Royal Sussex page on YouTube and the things they post. And that's where I found that disgusting video making fun of my father just because he's going to the Jubilee. I mean, and if you look on the Royal Sussex page on YouTube, you're gonna see exactly whose it is. It's definitely Meghan Markle. And, and if it's not her personally, she's definitely paying somebody to do it. And it's just Do you wrong. think she's involved? I absolutely. I mean, somebody, somebody's footing the bill for this. Okay, and we allowing... obviously haven't seen evidence of, of that, but it, that, is a, that is a one theory. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't have 100 percent proof. I'm um, just saying Tom, somebody. Yeah. Th Thomas, can I can I just ask you, you're obviously uh, your father's voice for the moment because Thomas, very sadly, has lost his speech. Uh, we know he'll get it back. It's going to be a long road. There's going to be a lot of physical therapy, a lot of speech therapy. But as it stands, you are his voice uh, on planet Earth right now. Can I just get you to speak directly to your sister, Megan? and say what you would like her to know and what you would like her to do for your dad. Well, at this point, I, you know, it, it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, um, that's one question that me and my dad did not go over prior to this interview. I, I would say that, I mean, a day late and a dollar short times 10 maybe, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what she can do at this point if it's going to mean anything, if she actually tries to reconcile with my dad or reach out. Um, I don't know. It, th that's a good question, Dan. Um, I would just like to say to Meg, I guess myself, um, you know, stop, stop the vicious PR attack. Um, you know, I mean, if you want to show some love and support for my dad, I mean, you know, I mean, step in and definitely do some support. I mean, we've got a long road ahead of us right now. Definitely a long road ahead of us. And I'm going to be here for the duration. So if you want to show your support in any way whatsoever, I mean, you know, instead of throwing money at your PR crew or your photography crew, throw some money towards the medical bills. You know, we'll probably need help with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Thomas Markle Jr., do send our love to Thomas Sr. We're going to miss him this week, but he will be in our thoughts and in our prayers. And do keep in touch, Thomas. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much, Dan. My dad just gave a thumbs up and a little, a little applaud. He really appreciates it. And he's really looking forward to uh, 
a speedy recovery. He's doing amazing, by the way. I mean, amazing considering. It's just incredible. Well, we'll miss him this week. We will miss him a lot this week. Thank you so much to both of you. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. Now, Stephen Fry, who many would say epitomises the champagne-quaffing metropolitan elite, has slammed Brits as deluded for thinking this is not a racist nation. The actor, writer and broadcaster scoffed at the idea that Britain is tolerant as he spoke to Homeland star David Harwood on stage at the Hay Festival of Literature and Arts in Wales. Look. You know, there are two types of racism I realized when I read this, one of which I, I, I'm, I'm a part of as an unwitting uh, uh, person, but I should be witting about it, i.e. knowing. that The first is obviously the National Front type, the people who say those kind of awful things to you and who make rallies about it and use appalling language and, and, and have nothing but hate in their hearts. But there is also the fact that our world as white people is such a blissfully easy swim into doors and places that and we're not aware of, uh, you use the phrase, of what a white space it is. British people, we do rather like to think, because we're politer and nicer than Americans, that our racism, <laughs> while it might exist, but of course it's all <laughs> We delude ourselves. I'm shocked and embarrassed that I didn't get it in a way more, because you pay lip service if, if you're a decent, so-called decent, uh, progressive figure. Constantine Kisson, your reaction. Well, Dan, I've been trying to think because, you, you know, you, you talked about Stephen Fry being representative of the champagne quaffing liberally. I actually, this is a guy I have a lot of respect for, creative genius, very, very intelligent man. And I've been trying to work out for a long time why it is that so many of these people have, have been trying to spread this idea. And it seems to me like it's almost like fashion. Do you know what I mean? Do you remember those stupid jeans with the holes on the knees that everybody was just wearing for a while? And if you'd ask them, they couldn't have an explanation of why you should have holes in your jeans. They just know that that's what all the cool kids wear. And I think it's very much the same thing here because I, I was actually invited to go to the same festival. I couldn't make it for family reasons. But I, I wish I'd gone now because the question I always want ask these people is when you say Britain is an intolerant place compared to what? What are you comparing it to? Every study we see of European countries shows that Britain is the most welcoming country in Europe towards immigrants like me, for example, right? Uh, what else are you comparing it to Russia, where I'm from? Are you comparing it to China? Uh, in this case, Stephen Fry seems to be comparing Britain to the United States, a country which has a much darker history of race relations than we do, without any dispute whatsoever. So it seems to me that these otherwise smart and creative, intelligent people are simply doing this because it's the thing that everybody's doing without any regard for what is actually the reality of people yeah, talk in down our country. And I mean, he, by the way, he was prepared to throw around casual racism when it came to just saying Americans aren't nice people. So I think there was a lot of absolute rubbish being talked by Stephen Fry. But I think you are right. Uh, it's almost become the dumb thing hasn't it, amongst these people, that, that they have to say that Britain is racist. Whereas actually the Sewell report said the complete opposite. The Sewell report proved that we're not an institutionally racist country. Doesn't mean racism doesn't exist, but we're not intrinsically institutionally racist. 
I think, Dan, where we are with this issue is people like this simply are uninterested in the facts and the realities on the ground in what's happening in various communities in this country. And of course, I don't think you or I would deny that individual people can be bigoted and racist in a country of 70 million people. Sadly, you'd expect that. But uh, if, you, if you're looking at how do we compare to other nations around the world, in, in, you know, unless we're comparing ourselves to Narnia, we're doing pretty well. <laughs> Right. And I think we've got to remember that when we're making these comparisons and make these assertions about our country, we've got to remember that you're not going to ever live in a perfect world. But how close are we to addressing these issues? I think a lot further than most countries. I certainly as a dark skinned dark skinned immigrant in this country feel like we've not only made a lot of progress, but actually this is a, a great country anyway. And we are continuing to make progress on all of these issues. But I like I say, I just think so many people now they're playing to the gallery. You can see that Stephen Fry is talking in front of an audience, so I'm sure all want to hear the same thing that he's saying. Uh, and there's not much of a market for actually speaking the truth on this issue, which is Britain is one of the most tolerant countries, not just in the world today, not just in the history of the world, but the entire history of the of human civilization. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we are. And pretending otherwise doesn't help anyone. You're not actually helping black people or, or other minorities by claiming this is a racist, racist country. What you are actually doing is you're making it more hostile for them. You're, pre you're pretending like their lives are obstructed daily by all these terrible things. And much like the issue you were discussing earlier with the trans thing, it's just the fashion. No one can explain to you how a woman becomes a man or a man becomes a woman. It's just what the cool kids all are supposed to think. Very well put, Constantine Kisson, host of the Trigonometry podcast. Thank you so much, Constantine. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.